The following is a message by Dr. Brian D. Estelle from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. The text I was assigned uh, for this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Let me read that for you. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Let's pray as we uh, turn our attention to God's word. Almighty Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Grant us, O Lord, your Holy Spirit, illumine our hearts, take away the lackluster that covers our eyes. And grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your word, especially uh, your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is a notoriously difficult passage that uh, Professor Kim has assigned uh, to Professor Estelle. And wouldn't you know, he runs off to South Korea just about the time that uh, I have to get up and expound this text. But nevertheless, as I thought and meditated upon this passage, I think it has a clear message uh, for us, especially for us, uh, and I would say especially for those ministers who are present by way of extended application, but even more particularly and especially for those would-be ministers in our midst, but for all of us as well. J.G. Machen, most of you know his history, the founder of our own seminary, as part of the last message that he preached in that glorious Princeton chapel shortly before his departure to begin a new work at Westminster, he said the following when he defended uh, 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 intolerance. He says, to pray for tolerance without careful definition of that to which you are to be tolerant is just to pray for the breakdown of the Christian religion. For the Christian religion is intolerant to the core. There lies the whole offense of the cross and also the whole power of it. Always the gospel would have been received with favor by the world if it had been presented merely as one way of salvation. The offense came because it was presented as the only way and because it made relentless war upon all other ways. 
Now, if you were paying attention to the reading of God's Word this morning in this section, this section of 1 Thessalonians should have jumped off the page to you in our cultural climate, which cherishes tolerance, which cherishes a kind of uh, cordiality towards one another, even when the most dire issues are at stake. Did you hear what Paul said? For you brothers became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same thing those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. Did you hear his arresting comments with regards to his fellow countrymen? How do you reconcile this phrase with what Paul says about his own countrymen in Romans 9 through 11? Where he begins that section by saying, I would be cut off. I would be cursed if only my own countrymen... I would be damned in their place if only my own countrymen would believe in the gospel the way I do. This tension, this stark contrast between this section of 1 Thessalonians and what Paul says in Romans 9 through 11 and Galatians and elsewhere, where he gives a more favorable kind of tone towards his favorable or towards his countrymen has led many scholars especially in the past two centuries to say that this passage in first thessalonians must be an interpolation in other words a later addition by somebody else and that view has dominated scholarship in the past couple centuries with regards to the pericope we're looking at right now it's so anti-semitic How could Paul say such a thing to Jews who killed the Lord Jesus Christ? Who killed their own prophets or perhaps his prophets? Etc., etc. It is a passionate, in the words of one scholar, generalizing hateful diatribe against the Jews for having killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and interfering with Paul's mission to the Gentiles. Or, so it has seemed to most historians, theologians, and exegetes of the 19th and 20th century who have studied the passage. So is this the case? Is it merely a hard word from Jesus that is to be generalized to the whole Jewish race? Well, let's look at who the apostle really has in mind here. Because I would submit to you that when he comments about the Jews, and then you have a long qualifying relative clause afterwards, he's not uh, expanding that and generalizing that to all Jews, but rather to four, perhaps five different groups that may not be logically distinct, but at least had and probably had Jews within each group, one or more. Look at what he says. Those groups in the past and those groups in the present. One group, at least, killed the Lord Jesus. Who does he have in mind? 
Well, we don't know for sure what was bouncing around in the apostles' mind. Perhaps uh, those Sadducees, which were members of the Sanhedrin and got the trial process going before Pilate. And one can argue, surely, that ultimately the Romans were responsible for the most proximate uh, you know, enactment and execution of crucifixion. But that's beside the point. That's not what I want to concentrate on. Look at the second group who killed their prophets, or perhaps his prophets, one could even argue. But that's not what I want to concentrate on. What I want to concentrate on is those folks in the present, not the past, that the apostle identifies. In other words, not just Jews generally, but those Jews, they displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from uh, speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. See, that's a group in the present. That's a specific group that's not to be generalized. You remember several weeks ago when Professor Baugh introduced the letter and gave you some big themes. He said that this book teaches you how to live under affliction. And you get a little window of what that affliction was in Acts chapter 17. But also a subtext here, Professor Baugh said, is that this demonstrates to you how Paul defended himself. Not defended himself personally, but defended his office for the sake of the going forth of the gospel. And I think that subtext comes out clear here. This is an emotionally laden, charged text. The apostle is outraged. The apostle is frustrated. The apostle is indignant. Because he's the God-ordained, appointed instrument for the gospel to go forth to the Gentiles. And there is a group that is hindering that proclamation to the Gentiles of the gospel. And this deserves condemnation. This deserves sharp rebuke. This deserves a setting aside of cordiality, if you will, at this point. The Apostle Paul is moved And he's frustrated by this group. And some of this group was made up of Jews. And therefore he doesn't mince his words because his ministry to the Gentiles is being hindered. I think there's an application here for us. You know, before I came here five years ago, I buried my head in the ancient Near Eastern literature and languages department at Catholic University, tried to raise my family, and executed the limited pastoral duties I had. Now, since emerging from the Semitic's cave at the Catholic University of America, and becoming familiar with broader debates within the academy, and trying to play the part of a churchman, as well as an academician and a teacher and professor. The gospel is being challenged. 
And there are certain areas that the gospel particularly is being attacked. You ministers who are here, it is not a time to shirk your duty. It is not a time to pull your punches. I'm no prophet, and I'm no son of a prophet. But you know what? I'll venture to say the next 10 years are going to be very interesting and extremely significant years. What would the Apostle Paul do in such a situation? What should we do in such a situation? J.G. Machen, also in addressing his students at Princeton, said the following. Far easier it is to curry favor from the world by abusing those whom the world abuses. By speaking against controversy, by taking a balcony view of the struggle in which God's church is engaged. God save you from such neutrality as that. God save you from being so heartless, so unloving, so cold. God grant instead that in all humility, but also in boldness, in reliance upon God, you may fight the good fight of faith. All you Christian men and women, but especially you future ordinance, and moreover you ministers, you have a sacred duty not to pull back. God save you from taking a balcony view in the next decade. God save you from cowardice not speaking up when the gospel is at stake. And there may be times when you become indignant. There may be times when you don't waffle and you shouldn't. There may be times when you are called upon to express words in a real vehement tone. And we should exercise the utmost care as we do that, especially those of us who are given to anger uh, and find it hard to manifest that fruit of the Spirit that's so controlling of all the others, namely self-control. The Apostle Paul at this point was moved to indignation because he was called to spread the gospel. He was called to defend the gospel. His whole mental furniture had been rearranged, upset, repositioned after the Damascus Road experience. And he wasn't going back. It was all fulfilled in Christ. The penalty payer, the probation keeper, and he was willing to defend that and even to use vehement words to that end. This is not a later interpolation. This is not a condemnation of Jews generally. This is not anti-Semitism. This is identifying a specific group who was hindering the gospel proclamation to the Gentiles, something that was bequeathed to Paul to discharge his duty to that end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, O Lord, for its testimony to us of how your servants, how your saints have acted of old. O Lord, uh, we thank you for the Apostle Paul. We praise you for him, and we praise you for his boldness. Lord, uh, but moreover, we praise you uh, for sending your Son. O Lord, we thank you for the revelation of him. 
We thank you that all the promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And we pray, O Lord, that you would keep us uh, from cowardice at times when we are called and duty-bound to speak forth your word and to defend your gospel. Help us to that end, O Lord, we do pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Copyright 2011, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.